God bless you as we continue uh, to move into our study today. Open your Bibles. We're going to be taking a look at Luke and at the Gospel of John today. As we continue in the life of Peter, from shifting sand to solid rock. The title today is Be Great, Serve Well. And, you know, I, I want you to just think about it for a moment because the idea of greatness in our society is totally mixed up when it's compared with what's great to the kingdom of God. Very different value systems. And it's, it's, it's so uh, well illustrated by how we treat teachers. I think teachers are great. Look at this here. If you can read this, thank a teacher. If you can read this, you probably are a teacher. Teachers are asked to, to decipher foreign languages and, and all kinds of things. And, and uh, you know, having been married to a teacher and been a teacher at different times, I want you to know teachers serve well, and they're not paid very well. We have kind of a mix-up in our society of what we value. I mean, who... Who switched the price tags on what's important? Uh, we, we just don't get this. Our, our culture doesn't understand the values and certainly the values the, of the things that God values. It's very different. I, I think about these um, actors and professional athletes who make millions of dollars a year, and I think if they would just give like one week's salary to their favorite teacher, what a difference that would make. I mean, that would be like five times more than the teacher makes in a year. So I, I just think that'd be great. But, but, but you think about that. The values of the kingdom are very different than the values of the culture. And our culture is, is really kind of messed up. Uh, we, we, we think about power today, and, and there's a likelihood that we certainly are going to lose power at our home and probably here at the church but we're going to keep going. And, and I've been thinking about who has the power. Well, certainly government seems to have a lot of power, control over us, and they don't seem to make judgments based on the values of the kingdom of God. I'm not even sure how they make these judgments. Maybe we could edit this out of the video right here. I don't want to get called, you know, somebody's showing up and... But as we look at this idea, Jesus had real power. And the people who had the cultural power of the day seemed to be doing battle with Jesus all the time. And now we come down to the last night that Jesus has with his disciples. He's going to entrust them with proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's going to be turning it over to them because he's going to be gone. He's going to give his life. So we're going to take a look at what happened there at the Last Supper, specifically the washing of the disciples' feet and the lesson there that Jesus was giving them. But I need to give you a little background. And so we're going to start with Luke chapter 22, and this begins at verse 24. Here's what the disciples were doing on their way to the Last Supper. They began to argue amongst themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Now, you, you, you got to picture this. 
This is mostly James and John. In one of the Gospels, it says their mom was the one who came to Jesus and says, hey, would you do me a favor and let James and John sit on your right and left when you set up your kingdom? And, you know, Jesus is going, you have no idea what you're asking. You know, can you just see James and John? No, no, I get the right hand. You're on the left. I want to be on the right. You have to be over there. I'm older. You know, can you just imagine that? If you had children, you don't even have to imagine. You know what it's like. They're battling over these things. I remember there was a kid who, who was got a brand new baseball bat and, and ball and glove, and he runs out in the yard, and he's, he's, there's nobody there, so he's just going to play baseball with himself. And he, and he says, I'm the greatest batter there ever was. And he throws the ball up, and he swings, and he misses. And he thinks, ah, even, even great batters miss once in a while. And he throws it up again, and he swings, and he misses. And he goes, oh, well, strike two. And, and he throws the ball up again. And he misses. And he goes, I'm the greatest pitcher ever in the world. Our idea of greatness, battling to be great, is so warped sometimes. So these guys have been, who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus told them, in this world, the kings and the great men lorded over the people. Yet they're called friends of the people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are greatest among you should take the lowest rank. And the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important? The one who sits at the table or the one who serves? Now, I think that's an interesting question. Have you ever gone out to eat? Remember the old days when you used to go out to eat all the time? Probably some of you have. And, you know, it, obviously, this is kind of a duh question. The person who is serving, the waiter or waitress, they're honoring you and serving you, so you must be more important. And, and that's what Jesus says. Who's more important? It's the one who sits at the table or serves? The one who sits at the table, of course. But not here. Not in the kingdom of God. Not in the church. For I am among you as one who serves. Mark adds a great little thought here that uh, Luke doesn't have. Mark says, for even the Son of Man, and that was Jesus' favorite designation of himself. He called himself the Son of Man. He said that he is Jesus came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. I, I would just include, you know, ask you to even think about that, and, and you could even star that, Mark 10.45. That is the mission statement for the kingdom of God. That's Jesus' purpose statement for why he came and what he came to do, Mark 10.45. So, what is Jesus doing at the Last Supper? They've gathered for this meal. This is just before the Passover. And it, come, some have said that this is not actually a Passover Seder. This is a meal before the Passover. But anyway, it's the Last Supper. It's the last time that Jesus is going to spend with his disciples, and they're going to share this meal together. 
And so this is the last time Jesus is with them. So he has some important teaching, some important lessons that he wants them to hear. He makes some proclamations during this time. And, and this whole discourse, especially uh, recorded in John, uh, begins at John 13. And so what's Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is this person of true humility. And so he demonstrates that by washing the disciples' feet. So here is John 13, beginning at verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority. And this authority, it says in one version, is over all things or over everything. Jesus has authority, a power over everything. And Jesus knew that he had come from God and would return to God. You see, Jesus knew things that we don't know. There's a very interesting uh, concept here that we need to understand, that Jesus is fully divine. He is fully God. But when he came to earth, the incarnation, he became fully man. And so at, he is at one time fully God and at one time fully man. But as a man, he, he had to empty himself of himself. And, and so he, he still needs to communicate with God the Father. He has even a little argument with God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know. So, so, but Jesus knows. He knew things that we don't know that we need to know. So what did Jesus know? By the way, this Greek word to know or Jesus knew is that he could see things that we don't see. Uh, he could perceive things. This, this word, you know, you know how sometimes people are just not aware of their own actions, but they're highly sensitive to other people's actions? Well, Jesus perceived all of that. And, and as we as we learn to be more like him, our perception of the needs around us uh, grow. Uh, I, I think that we saw a video this morning, and it some people saw and some people didn't see. And that's the way it is in our culture. We are called to see like Jesus. And this word also can be translated as understand. Not just to know something, but to really know it, to understand it. And so Jesus has a knowledge. He has an understanding that he needs to share with us. And I'm going to share just seven of those things with you right now. One of the things that Jesus knew was he knew his time. He knew the hour had come. He had come for a purpose, and he knew that he was going to be giving his life soon. Uh, he knew his time, the hour. He knew himself. Number two, he, he knew who he was. He was comfortable with himself. And he knew who his father was. He knew that he had a special purpose in this family. He knew his, his place there. That's number three. He knew his role. He had a purpose and, and, and a place in the world that no one else has had. He knew how to serve. And he was going to give his life sacrificially. So he knew that the time was there. He knew who he was, and he knew he, what he came to do. He also knew, knows that he came from God. 
it's so important to know where you come from, to not forget where you come from. Even more so with Jesus, he knew that God had sent him to earth and, and that had given him authority over all things, over everything. But Jesus sets that power aside. And you can read about that later in, in um, uh, Philippians 2, 7 and 8, where it talks about him becoming nothing so he could be everything. And that's what Jesus did. He came from God for that purpose. And he also knew, number five, where he was going. He knew when and where and to whom he would go. After he gave his life, he returned to God. He knew that. And it, that's an important thing for us to know. What happens to us when our journey here is true? The sixth thing that he knew was that he knew that he was Lord. Now, this word Lord is translated various ways. It's used lots of different times, sometimes with a small L, sometimes with a large L. We think about the lords and ladies in, in Europe and in England particularly, you know, and, and that word gets used for all kinds of things. The real translation here is the idea that Jesus is supreme. Now, mostly when we think of supreme, that's a size of pizza. You know, oh, supreme, there's no pizza better than supreme. Well, the real concept here is there's no one better than Jesus to do the things that Jesus needed to do to lead us in our journey back to God. This idea of being Lord also means that there's a lot of control, a lot of power that Jesus has, that he was in control. Even when he's on the cross, who's in control of that situation? It's Jesus. He's praying for others from the cross as he's being killed. He, he was Lord. He also says, not only am I Lord, but I'm also your teacher. And this is not the word rabbi that's used in this place. It's the word master. I am the master teacher. I am the teacher with the authority. And that's what was said about Jesus, that he taught as one who had real authority. The things that Jesus said seemed to really make sense. And, and, and people flocked to hear him teach because his teaching was so good, so helpful, so beneficial. So Jesus knew that he was Lord, the ultimate power and authority, but he was also here to teach, to instruct us on how to live. One more thing Jesus knew. He knew betrayal. He knew that he was about to be betrayed, and he was about to be denied and by two of his closest friends. And yet, he knew all of these things but he loves us. He loved the ones who were killing him. And he gave his life for us. He knew all this and he did it anyway. Uh, many of us would probably run. We'd run away. But Jesus walked towards the cross, even carrying his own cross. Well, Jesus knew a lot of these things and he wants us to know. He wants us to know what's really valuable in our world, not by the world's standards, but by the kingdom of God's standards. He wants us to know. He, he knows that we need to learn and not just hear it, but to put it into practice to understand what we're learning. So all these things that Jesus knew 
He wants you to know also. Learn and understand. Trust and obey. Know how things work and what it means to be a part of the kingdom. So how is he going to illustrate this to the disciples? Okay, back to John 13. This is verse 4. So he, Jesus, got up from the table, took off his robe, and wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. It's interesting here that he took off his outer garment and when he had the tunic below, that was the dress of a slave. Slaves didn't have these nicer outer garments. They dressed more simply. And, and so he is taking the position of a slave, even demonstrating that by removing his robe. So it's, it's kind of like we would say he rolled up his sleeves and got to work. That's what he's doing here. Then it tells us in the scripture that he began to wash the disciples' feet and drying them with the towel that he had around him. So he's going along, and I'm kind of interested, who got their feet washed first? You know, scholars have, have tried to figure this out, and, and they can't. But they surmise, well, it was Peter was first. doesn't seem to be indicated here at all. Some say it was Judas who had his feet washed first. Wow, that has implications. Um, maybe it was Thomas who, who doubted things. or you know, who, who was it? It really doesn't matter. What matters is that they understood the example of humility that he was giving. So, verse 6, when he came to Simon Peter, and our study about Peter has been great. Peter has these moments of triumph and these moments of defeat. Well, what do you think this one's going to be? When he came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, and he said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And it was kind of phrased as a question, but what he was really saying is, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. You know, no way. And Jesus said, yeah, I'm going to wash your feet. They're dirty. They need to be washed. But also, Peter, there's an example here. And you don't get it. And you got to get it. This is an important example of humility for you. So here's what Jesus said in verse 7. Jesus replied, you don't get it. You don't understand now what I'm doing. Someday you will. No, Peter protested. Can't you, don't you just love Peter? He tells it like it is. No, you will never wash my feet. This sounds so much like a preschooler throwing a tantrum. And, you know, Peter, Peter speaks up. The other disciples, they're not going to say anything. They're quiet. You know, maybe there's some good advice in that for us, that, you know, those of us who, who speak, well, those who remain silent are thought to be wise. And then when you open your mouth, you remove all doubt of that. That happens to me all the time. So, you don't understand, but you're going to get it someday that Peter says no. Peter puts his foot down, literally, unyielding, inflexible, no way. He is going to stop this from happening. Well, he thinks he's going to. Peter thinks he knows better than Jesus. How often do we act out things 
we think, hey, this is the right, this is what Jesus would want me to do. Only to find out it's exactly the opposite. But look over Peter. Peter goes from, no, you're not going to wash my feet, to look what happens next. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. You're gonna, you're, you're, you'll have no share in what I'm doing. Uh, one of the versions says you'll have no part to play in the kingdom being set up. You, you will not be doing what I'm calling you to do. And so Peter then responds, total 180, then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Now he wants a bath. Total reversal from what he wants. We would be reminded of this because in, in politics today, we have flip-floppers. You know, they say one thing one time and depending on the audience and all. And it seems like that's what's happening. There, there's a, a theological explanation for this. Uh, uh, you see, not understanding and then saying one thing and then beginning to understand and saying the opposite. We, we call that, this is a theological term. You might want to write this down. Wishy-washy. Okay? Wishy-washy, that's what it is. Uh, the Bible calls it lukewarm. Peter is hot. No. Peter is cold. No, cold would be no, and hot is yes, and do it all, and he ends up being lukewarm. And, and he's not the person yet that Jesus wants him to be, to lead the early church. Jesus replied, a person who has bathed, all over, does not need to wash, except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean. Well, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. And that is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. You know, it, it's so interesting. Uh, for the disciples, they probably, going to a dinner like this that was a special setup, a banquet kind of a thing, they would have probably all gone to the bath that day. There were public baths. But after they bathed, they would have put sandals on or maybe walked bare feet. That was a custom when you went from the bath home, you went bare feet. And so as soon as you got home, your feet were dirty, whether you had sandals or not and they needed to be cleansed, and then you'd be clean all over. And so there's a little controversy here about that. We'll look at it in just a minute. But look at what Jesus does next. Verse 12. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again, and he sat down, and he asked, Do you understand what I was doing? I'm not sure that we really understand the full implications about what Jesus was doing when he washed their feet. But he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Do you realize this is not a teaching just to learn? This is a teaching to do. So do as I have done. 
I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Let me tell you a problem in the church today. We know the gospel. We know the truth. The problem is we don't do what we know. We've got to understand not to operate the way the world operates, but the way the kingdom of God operates. That's what Jesus is doing today, teaching this lesson by example. So, why did he wash the disciples' feet? Why did Jesus wash Peter's feet? Well, the obvious answer is they were dirty. There's been much, much, much scholastic conjecture of why someone didn't wash their feet. This was kind of an out-of-the-ordinary, kind of a different place that they were going. I don't know how it got skipped. Normally, a, a servant, a slave, would have been there to wash the feet. It didn't happen. So who should do it? Well, normally, the customs would have dictated that the youngest person in the group, perhaps John himself, would have been called upon as the youngest member to wash the feet. Dirty jobs go to you know, young people. So who knows why they, they missed it. But for whatever reason, that foot washing didn't happen when they came in. And so their feet were still dirty, even though they had bathed. But they also needed a lesson on serving. So why did Jesus wash Peter's feet? Because they were dirty. But he also needed an, uh, an important lesson here. He needed a lesson on physical cleaning. But even more important, he needed cleansing from sin, a spiritual cleaning. Peter needed to know who Jesus really is, what he came for. Peter needed to know how to be great. And to be great in the kingdom is to serve. How to be great. Peter needed to know. We need to know. We need to know how to be more solid. As Christians, we need to be more consistent, to, to be more Christ-like. Jesus calls us to a concept called servant leadership. That the, the, the one who is the leader is the servant of all. I remember we were sending out a group of college-age students to go on a mission trip. And there were six of them. And between the six of them, they were going to have to figure out who was going to be the designated leader of the group. Oh, can you imagine the dynamic between six young people trying to figure out? And there was one particular girl in this group that was a, just a great servant. And the other people recognized, wow, she has something. She should be our leader. But there was one guy in the group that was a man, and a little older, and so he thought that he should be the leader. So there was this going back and forth. And guess what happened? The girl, who was a servant leader, she yielded. And that guy became the leader until partway through, when everyone recognized she was the real spiritual dynamic that they needed for their leader. So these six young people went to the mission field for three months and, um, and served. And because of that girl, 
who was had a great servant heart, it changed their mission. How to be great. Understand what it means to be a leader. Okay, three things I want to give you. If you're taking notes, write these down. The first way to be a, a great leader is to be humble. Service, humility. These are the vehicles that get the power of the kingdom of God to the world that needs it. How do people know about Jesus? By our service, by our love. Galatians 5 tells us, For you've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So to be humble, that is what Jesus is instructing these disciples and us today. That's where we begin to humble ourselves before the Lord. The next thing to be a great servant is to be clean. You have to be physically and emotionally, mentally and spiritually clean to, to be fit to serve in the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to know there's two different words that are used here by Jesus in this scripture in John 13. One of them is the word that is used and translated by us as bathe. And the other word is washed. Now, bathing and washing seem very similar, but they have very different here. And, and some scholars have conjectured uh, a lot in this. And I don't know, we'll, we'll kind of think about that a little more. But the underlying principle in, in this is that those who have had a bath represent those who have been saved. They've been regenerated. Uh, this, this principle of regeneration. And once you've had that bath, you don't need to bathe again. You don't need to be saved again. Uh, Titus uh, 3 tells us, Jesus washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. But, but even Christians have times need to wash. And this, this washing has been described as a cleansing from sins. Not a regeneration of being saved from sin, but a cleansing from everyday sins. From time to time, sins need to be dealt with. First uh, John tells us, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, this one says wickedness. You wanted to say righteousness, didn't you? Unrighteousness, wickedness from sins. He cleanses us from that. So this first word, bathing, this changes our relationship. You have a little chart if you want to write this in. Uh, God changes our relationship with him. He restores us to his image by being bathed in the blood of Christ. The bathing, the salvation that happens. But the second washing, just regular washing, uh, as we notice sins in our lives, that improves our fellowship. Our fellowship with one another, our fellowship with God, 
So our relationship and our fellowship both come into play here. The idea of being bathed, that's once for all. Hebrews tells us, but our high priest, Jesus, offered himself as to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. Jesus was one sacrifice for all time. Jesus doesn't need to be sacrificed over and over again like the lambs were in the Old Testament. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Some might even say supreme, the Lord. And so he took that place to, to cleanse us from sin. But this daily washing, that is helping us deal with our daily sins that need confession and they, and they need cleansing. And the Bible tells us that the blood cleanses eternally, frees us from guilt and sin. It's just like we never sinned. We're regenerated. But the believer needs this constant cleansing from daily defilements of sin. Let me tell you how this happens. You might be a Christian and you're going along fine and then all of a sudden you're reading something, you, you hear from a pastor or a Bible study leader, there's some area of your life and you realize you're sinning. You're not practicing what the Bible, what the Lord teaches. When you become aware of that sin, what do you do? Well, you confess it. You ask God to cleanse you, you to get victory over that thing. And, and, and that moment, you grow in Christ. There's a whole process that comes together to, to make this happen. But So by bathing, we're eternally free from sin. And by washing, we're cleansed from the everyday sins, both of which need to be done, and both of which are done in Christ. So... One more thing that happens to be great in humility and to serve in the kingdom is to be useful. You know, I thought a lot of different words we could use here to be obedient, to, uh, to be doing things. To be useful, that's what we need to be for the kingdom. We are the messengers, not the message, but we have a great message. We need to share it. We have to be useful to the kingdom. And by the way, you're essential. So you got to be clean. Jesus says, I'm going to choose to use you to get my word out. And we become his tools. So you got to be clean to do that. we got to be bathed in Christ. The blood of the lamb cleanses us. And we got to wash our hands. And, and this whole idea is that useful hands are clean hands. Physically clean and spiritually clean. The the religious leaders, they made a big deal about ceremonial washing. But it wasn't, it didn't really connect with, with the people because it was ceremonial. It wasn't, there wasn't the purpose they could see. I, I've seen this sometimes in the church when we've had a foot washing. Have you ever been a part of a foot washing, any of you? Have you ever done that in church? You know, it's an interesting process, and it's it's a kind of a humbling kind of a thing. And I remember we did one here, and, and Pastor Herb Radcliffe, love Herb, he led that. And I remember thinking, wow, this is very different. And I remember thinking, I need to be sure to wash my feet before I go to that foot washing. Where's the purpose? It was a ceremonial purpose. 
But there wasn't a real purpose there. And then one time, it wasn't very long after that, I was out of town and I went to church with one of my kids and they said, hey, we're going to go down to the mission and it's our night to, to serve at the mission. So I said, okay, great, I'll, I'll be glad to go. I've gone to the mission from time to time. And so I go down there and they said, now we're going to do a different thing. When, when the homeless people would come into the mission, they needed to wash. Their hands were dirty. And so there was kind of an old sink, kind of a tub. You can imagine it wasn't very nice. But what they did, this group that I was a part of, they brought basins and warm water. And if the homeless person chose, they could come and have their hands washed by one of these handsome young people or by one old guy that was doing it too. And I remember washing the hands of a homeless person. And they needed to be washed. But it was. It was a practical experience for them. And it was a humbling experience for me. And I saw the purpose and value in that. And so I think when we serve, let's not serve ceremonially and, and do it just for one another. When we're to wash feet, it's finding a way to really minister to a person with a need. And the, that one day at the mission was the closest that I came to understanding a foot washing. And it was with hands that needed to be clean. When we think about being useful for the kingdom, our hands are useful hands when they are cleansed. If they are not cleansed by Christ, then they're not useful. So we have this idea to be great, to be like Jesus, we need to be humble, we need to be clean, and we need to be useful. To be bathed and washed in the, in the blood of the Lamb. And guess what? We, we become great. I, I remember hearing this story of Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa is one of those, when you think about humility and service, boy, she is one that often comes up. And it, and it seems like there was a young college intern who was serving in Mother Teresa's ministry amongst a leper colony in India. And it just so happened that one of those days that summer, a rich American businessman came through, and he was considering giving a lot of money to Mother Teresa's organization, so he came to see it for himself. This guy is super rich, and he's walking around, and he sees this young woman, this intern, bandaging the hands of a leper who, whose flesh is literally rotting away. Fingers are missing. And, and he sees her unbind the hands and carefully dress them and re-bandage them. And, and just without even thinking, he says under his breath, Man, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And this girl, without even thinking, looks up and says, neither would I. And you know, that's the value of serving in the kingdom of God. The world can't begin to understand the importance and the value of it. But as we serve, we speak the gospel in what we're doing. And that's what Jesus calls us to be and to do. This is a lesson that Peter needed. 
Did he get it? Later that night, he'll deny even knowing Jesus three times. And we'll be looking at what effect that has in Jesus' life. But I want to share one more scripture with you that helps kind of pull this concept together for us. This is out of Hebrews chapter 10. And it says this, And since we have a great high priest, meaning Jesus, who rules over God's house, he has authority over all things, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm to what we say we know. For God, who trusted to keep his promise, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, to serve. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his returning is drawing near. I have to tell you something, as we think about what it means to serve and what it means to be humble and, and to be a part of the kingdom of God, we have a promise that Jesus is going to return again. And I have to tell you that we are closer today than any other time. We're one day closer to his return. And there sure seems to be evidence as you look at the times in which we live that Jesus may be coming soon. We're not going to know the day or the hour, but Jesus knows. And in this time, our job is to serve. If you knew where Jesus was coming, if you knew he was coming next week, how would your life be different this week? Would you go eat, drink, and be merry, as some suggested in the early church? Hey, we're waiting for Jesus to come back. Let's just party. And finally, the early church leader said, stop. We got to get to work. We gotta, we've got this age of grace. We've got to tell people about the Lord. That's what we're here to do. That's our mission, to pick up his purpose and make it our own to serve. And that's what we're to do, humbly, with the cleansing that he provides us, to be useful for the kingdom of God. Let's pray today. Lord, make us what you have called us to be. You have chosen us to be your followers, your disciples. Help us to learn our lessons well and to do it for the glory of God. In Jesus' name.